Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. And if you've missed it live, you can check out the podcast at cjsw.com. On this month's episode, we take a little bit different approach. We're going to talk to two photographers, Neil Jennings, about his popular wildflowers books, and also Leah Hennel, who has a book about Western life called Along the Western Front. Neil Jennings is an ardent hiker, photographer, and outdoorsman who loves getting down in the dirt, pursuing his keen interest in wildflowers. For 22 years, he co-owned a fly fishing retail store in Calgary, and he has fly fished extensively in both fresh and salt water for decades. His angling pursuits usually led him to wildflower investigations in a variety of locations. He taught fly fishing related courses in Calgary for over 20 years and his photographs and writings on that subject have appeared in a number of outdoor magazines. Neil Jennings, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. You're here today to tell us about two very lovely books that I had the great fortune of receiving in my mailbox during this cold, nasty winter. The books are Popular Wildflowers of the Canadian Prairies and Popular Wildflowers of Alberta and the Canadian Rockies. And I have to say they are absolutely beautiful and um, were such a treat to to look at when it was nasty outside. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I look at them a lot at those sort of times, too. <laughs> I bet. So tell us a little bit about how these beautiful little books came to be. They're kind of a, um, they're described as a field guide for the curious amateur naturalist traveler or hiker. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very good description. It, it, uh, it probably came directly from Don Gorman, who's the publisher of the books. Uh, I became interested in wildflowers a long time ago, uh, principally as, uh, an offshoot of my fishing passion. Uh, I used to go fly fishing a great deal, and I fished with an erstwhile business partner who knew a lot about flowers, and he was constantly stopping and looking at things, and I would ask him, what is that? And he would tell me, and I would usually forget and ask again. (laughs) And eventually... uh, it got to the point where I think Don just got a little bit a little bit uptight because I was asking too many questions and repeating things that I should have remembered. And he said, you, you're out here all the time. You're out here more than I am. You really need to educate yourself because I'm not going to be around forever. And this is part of the natural environment that you see all the time. And you can get a lot of clues as to what's going on about fishing from the flowers and what things are blooming because there's with fly fishing what you're trying to do is you're trying to imitate an insect morsel that the fish are eating and insects like flowers have a sequence of appearance throughout the oh, year. Oh, so it's a whole so, symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. And it's uh, you have one of the first insects that you see on the Bow River, for instance, is called a blue-winged olive. It occurs in the well late uh, late uh, April to May, mm-hmm. and it comes off in hundreds of thousands, and the fish start to feed on them. And you can just about tell when the blue-winged olives are going to come off by when things like crocuses start to bloom. Oh, so that's so fascinating. It, it really is fascinating, and it, it becomes uh, it becomes more so when you start to understand about it. For instance, when I was taking photographs with my business colleague, I didn't know what they were. I would come home and try to find them uh, by way of books or internet connection when that became available, but. What I realized was, wait a minute, this is more about the habitat than it is about anything else. 
So there's going to be certain things that happen in certain places at certain times, and they don't happen other places at other times. Right. So if I want to find a, a reasonably rare orchid, what I need to do is I need to track down the kind of environment that that orchid uses as its blooming space in its blooming time. And it becomes easier as you start to photograph with digital equipment because the MetaTag gives you the time and the date that you took the photograph. Oh, so you're starting to compile basically your encyclopedia of clues. Exactly. And what happens is you start to, to put together, as you say, an encyclopedia of what you've seen. And in southern Alberta, for instance, there's probably about 400 species of blooming plants. It, wow. It's very, very difficult to find all of them because some of them are quite rare and occur in only very small places in the province. But as you become familiar with these things, you know more and more about where to go and try to find them. Mm -hmm. And it becomes really a, sort of a passion. Uh, and it's, but it's, it's addictive, but it's not damaging. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... I, I collected all of these things and started to put them together. And back in 2004, 2005, I showed that collection, as it then was, to a publisher in Calgary. And he said, wow, we could make a book out of this. And they did. Uh, and then we made some more books uh, with wildflowers in them. And Don Gorman came back to me oh, about 18 months ago and said, your books are out of print. Uh, let's redo them. Let's redo them in a smaller format so that people will actually carry them around with them when they go out into the field. Because the original books were sort of 260 to 310 pages long, fairly heavy, fairly expensive uh, and what we were shooting for is something that people would take with them in the field. So each of the books comes under cover with 102 pages. And, and they are very, very portable. They are, you know, light and, and accessible as a user. They're, you know, just to describe them for the audience. I love that they're, the flowers are, are, for example, coated by colors. You know, if you're hiking around and you whip out your, your little book that's easy to carry and you see this beautiful red flower, you can page through it and find out that, oh, what you're looking at is a western wood lily. That's right. And it, it works best with the color as far as I'm concerned because when people ask me, what is this flower? And, and they say, well, what does it look like? the first thing they're going to tell me is the color that they saw in this flower. Right, yeah. And that's almost a universal reaction. They don't tell you how big it is. They don't tell you how tall it is. They tell you it's red or it's pink or it's yellow or whatever. And they may and, not tell you, oh, I found it, you know, in, in, a, in very marshy ground or very sandy ground. They're going to tell you first and foremost what it looks like. Exactly. Starting with and, the color. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, that, that I've, I've tried to instill with people, and uh, when I was in the fly fishing industry, I ran uh, a, a coterie of guides to fish uh, with paying clients. And I told the guides, I want you to learn about the flowers. And they looked at me like you know, I had one eye in the middle of my forehead. <laughs> and, and I said, no, it's seriously, the people that you take out on the river to fish they are sitting in your office when you're in their boat. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Uh, so, and they're going to say, what is that? And they'll ask about birds and they'll ask about plants and they'll ask about flowers. Yeah. And I don't know isn't a good answer. That's because true. they're relying on your expertise and that's why they're putting their butt in your boat. Right. You're the expert on everything their eyes touch when that's you're right. out there. Yeah. And and that's an expectation and I I tried to drill it into the guides. It's a legitimate expectation. Yeah. 
and it's not that difficult. When it comes right down to it, as I say in the introduction of the book, it's facial recognition, really. If you have never met George W. Bush, mm-hmm. but you see a photograph of George W. Bush, you know it's George W. Bush. Right. Okay? Because you you've do seen know- the image enough times. Exactly. You do know your dentist. You do know your paper carrier. Uh, yeah. you, you do know your lawyer. You do know your next-door neighbor. If you put all of those things together, the people that you know, the people that you do business with, the people that you go play games with, the people that you see at dinner parties, pretty soon you're going to be able to recognize several thousand people. Right. And it includes all of those people. You've never met Brad Pitt, I'll bet, but you know what he looks like. (laughs) So, and Brad Pitt's not going to look any different whether he's in uh, Western Canada or in Peru. Yeah. Right? So it's really a question of putting two and two together. And if you learn the names of the thing, what you also will do is you will increase your enjoyment of going out to find them because you're more in tune with what is going on. So it's a replenishment all the time, but it, it actually reaches out and grabs you and says, you need to know who I am. And, and on that note, Neil Jennings, um, each entry of these flowers does tell you the story, a little tiny story, of who the plant is, what it is, where they like to grow. Um, it's almost like, you know, you're not just giving us facial recognition, you're also giving us personality traits and historic uses. Yes, and, and a number of them come um, for medicinal purposes from indigenous people. There's, there's scores of plants that the indigenous people learned to use as medicinal things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also learn what can you touch and what can you leave alone. Right, uh, because you, you are quite clear that, uh, about the, the toxic nature of some of those plants well. Well, I have toxic plants in my backyard <clears throat> that I've grown from seed, <clears throat> but all of my children and my grandchildren know you can certainly look at these beautiful things, but no, you cannot pick them. Right. And you certainly cannot eat them. And I would never recommend that anybody eat a wild plant unless they are absolutely certain exactly what it is. Right. Because there's probably a fairly high percentage of plants that will make you sick or make you wake up dead if you, if you do treat them in that fashion. Uh, the other thing that people don't seem to understand about wild plants is if you pick them, they often won't come back. And the western wood lily is a good example of that. Its range has been significantly diminished over the years because you, if you pick them in the, in the midst of their blooming, then they no longer have that solar gatherer to make it bloom again. Right. So the bulb will waste away. So it's, and that's why most parks have a strict prohibition against picking flowers. And a picked wildflower lasts maybe 10 minutes. And then it's just a wilted mess that people are going to throw on the ground anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, people say, oh, well, it's just, it's just one, but it's just one times all million of us out there in the wild. Exactly. You, just, you, you make that very clear that, you know, they're to look at, they're not to trample over, they're not to transplant. Um, so learn, learn about them and enjoy them. Well, I used to tell people, keep your brims off the botany. <laughs> That's a good one. So, and, and we see that more and more. Uh, places like Sunshine Meadows. Uh, mm-hmm. above Banff. It's, uh, it's one of the most wonderful flower venues I've ever seen. And it's, it's like 14 square kilometers 
of almost like a mesa. And it's got a huge uh, diversity in terms of its biomass. And the, the quantities of flowers that come out is just totally remarkable. And yet it's all done in such a short capsule of time because they don't even start blooming until July and they quit in early September. Yeah, and it really is quite stunning up there. It is. It's it's awe-inspiring. Yeah. So, and Waterton is much the same way. Uh, Waterton has more flowers in that area, more rare flowers in that area than any other place in the province, and probably maybe even any other place in the whole of Canada. Uh, the diversity in Waterton is just it's astonishing. Uh, and even after the fires. Oh, I was actually, just going to ask you that. So, so it's, it's bounced back like uh, throwing a rubber ball against a window. It's amazing. Wow. And people are saying, well, I don't really want to go to Waterton, get all ashy and stuff like that. Go ahead, have a look. Uh, or, or you know, between you and me and and too many listeners, just keep them away. <laughs> That's what I love about Waterton. Well, and Waterton go there. <laughs> you know, Waterton gets ten percent of the of the visitation that Banff gets. Yeah. And, um, but it's you work for it because yeah. when you're walking around out there, there's you know there's a lot of up and there's a lot of down. There sure is. But. Uh, but man, and, is it worth it? <laughs> and the other, the other place that's really quite, quite spectacular. Very few people actually go to look for these things. But uh, places like right in on Stone Provincial Park. Oh, is, okay. It's a sensational floral uh, array. It happens early. Uh, it'll, it'll start blooming in April, uh, where Waterton won't really start blooming until, you know, good blooming until July. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Waterton is not that far from Riding on Stone, but the the difference in the habitat is significant, so you're not really going to see a lot of overlap between these things. Uh, so so what is the difference? Waterton is more alpine, and, and Riding uh, on Stone is... It's desert. It's desert, okay. Yeah, it's desert. It's... Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of cactus down there, uh, all over the place, both uh, prickly pear and uh, barrel cactus. I mean, there's lots of things that you can step on and get and get bitten or stung. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, it's a, it's an amazing place in terms of what it has to show you that you won't see elsewhere. Uh, there is, for instance, a plant down there that occurs from well, in Lethbridge, in the in the water, of the river valley, uh, it, it's called Amensalia decapitala. Amensalia is that's the name of a of a botanist, famous botanist in history. And decapitala, deca is ten, and patala is petals, and it has ten petals. The decapitala is a big plant, a big flower. Uh, the buds on it look for all the world like a uh, a small ice cream cone, a vanilla ice cream cone because it's white. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is it never opens in daylight. Oh? It only opens at dusk and in the dark. And the reason it operates that way is because it's a moth that fertilizes that flower. Wow. Right? <laughs> So the craziest thing my wife and I have ever done, uh, we got in the car one day uh, about probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we drove to Riding on Stone. And that's about a four-hour trip. And then we got out of the car, and we walked out into the hoodoos. uh, And in the hoodoos, you can see the mensalia plants that are there and which are going to bloom because you can see the buds. So we found this plant. I put a GPS marker on it. We went back, 
had dinner at the car, walked back in uh, just as it was starting to get uh, a little bit dark. And we sat down beside this plant that we were going to watch. And all of a sudden, about 8 o'clock, this thing starts to unfurl. And as it unfurls, you can get this aroma, this absolutely glorious aroma coming off it. It completely opens, is about the size, the diameter, say, of a softball. That and big? It's that big, and it's got all kinds of anthers, these bright yellow anthers sticking out of it. And we got some pictures. Uh, we left, got in the car, drove home, got home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And Linda said, that's the craziest thing we've ever done. I said, really, it's not. I mean, we've done crazier things, but there's not 1% of the population who's ever seen what we saw tonight. And so I'm looking at, at page 17 of Popular Wildflowers of the Canadian Prairies, and the common name is Evening Star. Yeah. And so was this photo from that crazy night? Yeah. Wow. And the other Beautiful. another interesting connection here is the mensilia also has a yellow version, but it, it doesn't bloom in Alberta. It blooms in southeast BC and it blooms down into Oregon. Um, and it's it's bright, bright yellow. Well oh. when we went to uh, Bend, Oregon, a couple of years ago to see the uh, the eclipse, the solar eclipse. We were sitting in a gravel pit, and um, it's the um, the eclipse started. It takes about 50 minutes for it to complete. And Linda came back and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Come with me. You've got to see this." And I said, "Well, we're in the busy." And she said, "It's not happening very fast. Come with me." <laughs> so we went up. And she, she pointed to this yellow flower. And she says, what is that? And I said, my goodness, that's, that's a mensilia, but it's, it's a levicollis. It's not a decapitala, but this is a sister plant. And as this eclipse came on, this plant, which was only sort of a bud as it got darker with the eclipse, the blooming thing bloomed. It came open. Wow. And then it shut when the eclipse is over because the, at the end of the eclipse, the light comes back hugely quickly. Right. And this thing just closed right up. And That's I became, how sensitive it is. Yeah. I, I became almost more interested in that than in the eclipse. Yeah. But... Uh, it, but you put these things together, and if you know what they are, it, it's a fascination. It's certainly a fascination to me and to most people that I've ever taken out. Uh, but many people, uh, the eclipse was a good, um, a good example. I didn't see anybody go to look at that flower. Right. And it's not as big as the deck of Atala, but it's, it's pretty bright. And it's it, you, know, you won't be missing it if you're at all interested in it. But and every bit is unique, if not more so, because it'll be an experience that you you have by yourself, kind of, because you know and other people don't. Well, it's a, it's a good thing to know. Mm-hmm. And it's not a hard thing to do. It's, it, people say, oh, I can't possibly remember that. Well, yes, the, it... it you hit, get some mnemonics going, okay? The common names for most plants, there's a problem with common names, and that is that they're not common enough. There's, there's a plant called a one-flowered wintergreen that blooms in many, many places in southern Alberta. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful old plant, only stands about four inches tall, and it looks like a, a little shade umbrella or an umbrella that might be in a Mai Tai at a bar, okay? <laughs> okay, yeah. And the that plant is known by at least four or five so-called common names that I'm aware of. 
Some people call it a nymph, uh, a wood nymph. Some people call it a one-flowered wintergreen. Some people call it uh, a, oh, there's other names, but I went <clears throat> I went to a friend of mine in southeast BC one day and said, I need to find a picture. I need to get a picture of this plant. She went out and she sent the request out to a whole bunch of people that she knew in the area, and there were at least five or six common names that came back. All of them traces back to the Monesis uniflora, which is Monesis is Greek for uh, shy maiden, and uniflora is one flower. One flower, yeah. Okay. So if you start using the common names, you can get into some trouble. <clears throat> but if you start using the Latin names and you start to understand the scientific names, you will avoid trouble. Uh, a calypso bulbosa is what people call a lady slipper or a fairy slipper. But if you call it a fairy slipper talking to somebody in Budapest, they wouldn't know what the hell you're talking about. Right, right. But if you say calypso bulbosa, then they immediately know what you're talking about, even if you're here and your person on the other end of the line is in Budapest. So it's a lot more specific, and it's not that difficult to start learning some of these. And some of them are really quite funny. Um, it's just, The names were mostly made up by Linnaeus, there's the man who put binomial nomenclature to plants, where you've got a genus and a species. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he's, he probably had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> because some of the stuff he, like Uva Ursi, uh, Uva Ursi is Greek, or pardon me, it's um, Latin for bear grape. And Archostaphylus is its genus name. Archostaphylus also is Greek for bear grapes. So he really wanted people to know that that's a bear grape. <laughs> because there, was, there would be no doubt that this absolutely was a bear grape. Absolutely <laughs> not. Bear grape, bear grape. Okay? Just depends on whether you want to speak Greek or Latin. Right. So, and it's I find that uh, using those scientific names often it's it's much easier to remember when you're using them all of the time. Uh, so, so what you're saying is don't be intimidated by the by the no. Latin word. Learn those over the the common ones. That's right, and it's it's really meant to be. So I mean the the reason that the that the scientific names are there is for specificity. Right. And it's, if that's what people want to do, that's fine too. I'm not saying that you have to understand scientific names in order to go out and enjoy the flowers. You don't. Uh, but I find myself, if I see Calypso lilies, or calypso orchids, uh, I tend to say, oh, there's a calypso. Where most people will say, no, that's a fairy slipper, or that's a lady slipper. So, uh, right. It's, it's what, what you do. And it, um, as long as people don't pick them, steal them, squash them, I don't care what they call them. Just learn them and love them. Learn yes. them and love them. And your yeah. books are a fantastic way to do that, whether you're out on the trail or, you know, sitting at home in front of the fire dreaming of the trail. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for for joining us on our show today. And um, your books are published by Rocky Mountain Books. And I know all of our our wonderful independent booksellers are, are uh, working together with Rocky Mountain Books. So even during this pandemic time, I'm sure people will be able to find them. And let's hope that we can all gently enjoy uh, the wild in the days to come. Thank you so much for calling. 
Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Neil. It's been a lovely conversation. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Leah Hennel originally dreamt of being a veterinarian, and until grade 12, she thought she would be. But her marks, math in particular, cured her of that dream. While in high school, she jumped at a chance to explore a work experience option at the Calgary Sun Photography Department. As it turned out, that practicum was the best thing that ever happened to her, as it opened her eyes to an exciting field and eventually led Hennel to the state photojournalism program, from which she graduated in 1998. She's built a fulfilling career at the Calgary's daily newspapers, The Sun and The Herald. She's traveled all over Alberta and most parts of Canada, as well as to Europe and Africa. She's won a few awards along the way too, but what's most important to her is that being a photographer still doesn't feel like a job. Leah lives in Calgary, Alberta with her husband Scott and her son Hunter. Hi everyone, I'm Courtney Dingerville, guest host here at Writer's Block on CJSW, and I'm joined today by an amazing, amazing Albertan, Leah Hennel. Thank you so much for being with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're doing our interview via phone conversation because obviously we're in a little bit of a pickle here, all together in a little bit of a quarantine situation, but all working together, trying to keep it to keep it together <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure yeah so i want to talk to you about this amazing book that you've got and that has been published this year called along the western front do you mind kind of introducing it a little bit yeah so the book um along the western front is just it's basically a collection of photos that i've done kind of a my ode to the ranch and rodeo life in alberta that i've been working on, I guess, plugging away at for the last 20 years. I don't want to age myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just a, I guess, a, a, just a snapshot of rural life in central and southern Alberta that I hope, like, you know, people that don't live close to us can take something away and maybe learn something about ranch life that they didn't know before. Yeah. It, it's beautiful how you captured different groups of people, not just, you know, your typical tough cowboy, although there are <laughs> certainly those in here like Scott Schiffner and J.B. Mooney and Roy McLean, um, but you you capture a softer side of, of this Western life, too. How, how, yeah. how, how do you do that? Um, you know, I also, I, I think because um, a lot of this book, I guess a lot of it I've focus more on the families of the ranch ranching life and women and women raising kids on the ranch. I think it kind of speaks to me because, you know, I'm a mom and I would bring my son when he was young with me to these, to take photos on the ranches. And also I just, it's such a, to me, ranch life is just such a family, I guess, business. I don't even know how to describe it, but I just wanted to show that there's not just, like you said, you know, the typical Marlboro man, <laughs> cowboy. I mean, there's cowgirls, there's everything. Oh, I had indigenous relay racers. Um, you know, there's just everything on the West. It's it's such a community with Hutterite colonies. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much of a community and different cultures on the prairies that I don't think people realize. I agree completely. I really do. How did you become embroiled in this? Where did it begin for you? You know, probably... <laughs> I always, I think in the book I tell this funny story about, so my dad grew up on a farm uh, near Stettler mm-hmm. and we would, his brother has it now, my uncle, and so we would spend our summers, my brother and I and my parents, we would drive up every May long weekend and help out at the family branding. And I think it just grew from there. I just, I, you know, I was exposed to farm and ranching life and I loved it. Uh, you know, maybe I, I think I wanted to be a rancher, but I never will. Uh, <laughs> I don't have the... You know, it's a lot of hard work, and yeah, but I think it just grew from there, just spending time on the farms and the ranches, and I just love getting out into the prairies. Um, I kind of had the best of both worlds, you know. I grew up in the city, but I would spend summers and the weekends uh, in the country on the farm, so, you know, I kind of grew up between two worlds, so I got to see the best of both. Do you feel like that being in between, kind of having having been exposed and, and having grown up in the city, 
but also having seen a lot of the different parts and aspects of ranching in, in a way that's more intimate than just a passerby or a visitor has given you a unique look into a lot of this? I think maybe, but I think I always fall back to on, um, you know, I'm no expert in ranching or farming at all. Mm-hmm. Um, not an expert in photography at all either. I think for me, what it is is that I just found something that I'm passionate about. And I feel like in photography or anything you do in life, whatever career you go into, if you're passionate about something, that's when you do your best work. That's when it comes through because I'm not photographing for anyone else. I'm just photographing for me. You know, um, as a photojournalist and working in newspapers for over 23 years, I've covered a lot of, a lot of stuff. I've met a lot of people. And for me, I would just escape into the country and, you know, photograph on the ranches. I made friends and it's just the work that I think it's my best work because I am so passionate about it. A lot of the images that you have in here are, it almost feels like they're, they're exceptionally intimate and, and something that not everybody gets to see. I mean, you've got rodeo contestants in their most vulnerable state with, um, with their boots being tied up with their, with their cinches getting done up with everything getting kind of really beginning warming up you've got beautiful images that are just captured and it it does really feel like like an escape looking at the photos yeah and I think I I mean I love doing the you know at rodeos I tend to go away from the action I mean we see it all the time those amazing sports photos those amazing peak action moments in rodeo or whatever you're shooting but I like the behind the scenes I like the before and the after I like you know, for example, at rodeos, especially at the Calgary Stampede, I like going in, you know, that last ride that someone takes. What happens to the people who didn't make it? You know, if you go into the dressing room and they lost, because that's part of it. And I think that's the stuff that people don't see. You know, not everyone, in, if I'm talking about sports photography and rodeos, not everyone wins, right? There's people that didn't win. They didn't stay on long enough. Or So what are they doing? Same with those, like, daily life moments. I find them really interesting. Some people might find them boring, but I just find daily life, how people live day to day, so fascinating. Especially that, portraits too. Yeah. I feel like portraits, when I look at a portrait, I want to know, I want to know that, who that person is. I want to know their story. And I just, I feel like the human face, especially the eyes, tell so much. Mm-hmm. I, I, certainly, I certainly see that in your work. It's, it's very prevalent. Um, how did you come into photography? What is, what is that story? Where did it begin for you? Well, I think maybe like most young girls my age who grew up loving ranching or whatever, I always wanted to, if I couldn't be a rancher, then I thought I could be a veterinarian. Um, <laughs> but my math marks are terrible. So I looked in high school, I took a work experience uh, course and I ended up at the Calgary Sun. And, you know, my parents would always, I would always be reading National Geographic and I thought, hey, I could, Instead of, you know, helping a sick animal, I could photograph them and travel the world. And it just kind of started from from there. And then I went to state for the photojournalism for two years um, while I was still working at the Sun. And then I got hired at the Herald um, when I was 21. And I just haven't looked back. It's, um, I have to, you know, it sounds so cheesy, but I have to pinch myself sometimes to be able to make a living taking photos, especially documentary photography is, Mm. I'm really lucky, super lucky. I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, certainly life does turn out like that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, Just being in the right place and having the right moment to seize opportunities. Exactly. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about um, about that that internship and and what that was like to really kind of discover that this was the path that your life was going to take? Yeah, you know, the internship at the, when I was in high uh, high school, I mean, I was in grade 10 or 11. So it's funny because I'm the same age as, my son is the same age now, so he doesn't know what he wants to do. And I think most, right, most young people don't know what they want to do. But as soon as I walked in there and I met a fellow photographer, Mike Drew, um, who became my mentor and is just amazing, um, I just fell in with photography. He taught me so much in the dark room. I mean, I started on film. No, I'm really dating myself. Um, <laughs> but I just, I, yeah, I don't know if I ever thought that I would still be doing it today. 
but I knew I wanted to, I love meeting new people. So I thought this is, this is the best job for me. I mean, I've, I've been able to go to Africa five times. Uh, I went to Russia. I went to, you know, the Olympics, Paralympics, shook hands with the Dalai Lama and the queen. I mean, yeah, when I think about what I've done in my career, I'm, again, I'm, I'm so lucky. Yeah, that's it's incredible. It sounds like this is just an an incredible, incredible career, and it's formulated in in the in this book. and And how did it come that that you wanted to be part of a publishing? Um, that I don't. I kind of I don't really remember actually. I mean, I signed <laughs> the contract in uh, I think 2015, and I think I did it because again I mentioned my my amazing photographer and mentor Mike Drew and. He did a book on his columns. He does these on the road with Mike Drew with Drive Over Alberta, and they're amazing. And he was thinking about doing a book, and I thought, hey, we should do one and come out at the same time. And it didn't work quite work out that way. Um, <laughs> it came out first. But, um, yeah, I never thought about it because, again, for me, my photography, especially this stuff that's my personal work, because it is so personal, it's really hard to share. I don't even know if that makes sense, but... Um, you know, photography is so subjective. What I like, other people won't like. So it's it's really hard to share something that's so personal, but at the same time, it's nice to have something tangible that I can give to the subjects in my book because without them, without anyone I photograph, I wouldn't have anything. So I owe so much to the, the people who allowed me to annoy them with my lens. Speaking of that, one of the people that is photographed in this is, is a, a dear friend of mine, Jesse DePoint, now O'Brien. Um, and I was I was talking with her yesterday when I, I sent her her photo in your book, and she mentioned how you had just a lovely way of making her feel comfortable and how she <laughs> is not somebody who's comfortable being seen and how the way that, that you approached her was something that, that made her trust and and be comfortable enough to have her photo taken and the result is stunning (laughs) wow well thanks (laughs) i don't i think i just approach people i'm just a you know i'm a regular person if i don't even know what how to how to explain (laughs) it but you know i photograph like i said like famous people to regular people like me and i treat them all the same i hope um yeah can you talk a little bit about some of the obviously we're we're talking mostly about the work that's come up in this book which is is mostly about ranching and western life but what outside of this has kind of been highlights of you to photograph you know beyond the western the western front that we see well there i mean there's so much i mean some of the stuff i photograph i mean the photos aren't anything to <laughs> they aren't for me aren't anything to they're not my greatest work but it's the moments and the people I met mm-hmm. um but definitely the highlight was my when I went to Sochi the Paralympics in 2014 mm-hmm. I love Russian history and took some courses in school and so to be there I you know I took a couple of days and went to Moscow that was a huge highlight for me um going to Rio South Korea for the Olympics in 2018 those experiences were amazing, not just the athletes that I got to photograph, but just meeting other photographers from around the world, mm-hmm. um, the traveling. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, there's been a lot of news stories that I've covered, the floods of 2013, Humboldt. Um, yeah, you know, I even remember covering the Pine Lake tornado in, oh, I can't even remember what year that was, 90-something, <laughs> late 90s, 2000. <laughs> um yeah, just there's so many experiences I, I I haven't even really thought about it. I I remember all this stuff when I look at photos. That's my journaling. Mm. Um, but yeah, so many experiences. Um, you know, for, uh, the Duke and Duchess of oh, Cambridge, right? Yep. I think when they came here to the Stampede, um, mm-hmm. that was interesting, especially to be around other British photographers and um, hockey, Grey Cups. Stanley Cups, like all that stuff has been, I've been super lucky. It's, it's fascinating to me because generally when I, when I think of 
photography. And when I think of photographers, you kind of get this really kind of quasi-French uh, impressionalist. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, come to my studio and we'll take portraits. And yeah. they're highly stylized and highly posed. And, and so I think what's been eye-opening for me is seeing how, how diverse your career has been and, and how it's not anything like that. That yeah. kind of idea that, you know, I think movies set in our head about what photographers are. <laughs> you know, I, I think too, I, the, the, you mentioned the studio stuff and I appreciate so many photographers who can do that. I'm just not good enough at studio. Like I just, <laughs> I suck at it. So I've kind of tried to, you know, bring my skills into, you know, whatever the light is there available light outside, whatever I have in my camera bag, I make use of it. I travel, try to travel really light, unless mm. I'm covering sports, obviously. Um, yeah, half the time, I mean, I don't take photos. I just like visiting with people. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I don't know what else I could say about that. <laughs> what kind of equipment do you use now? You mentioned that when you started your career, you were working in dark rooms on films. How has that changed? How has the development onto digital kind of changed how you take pictures? I don't, for me, I don't think it's changed. I'm glad that I learned on film because I mm. had to know what the right settings were, what the light, I learned how to read light. And I think a lot of uh, photographers starting out today with digital, they don't know and they just look in the back of their camera and you can shoot so many photos and get the right one. You know, I said you were limited, plus you knew how much how long it would take to develop the film and scan everything in or print. Um, but I think it's changed in the fact that it's faster, that especially when you're working in a fast-paced news situation to get mm -hmm. photos back to an editor, it's so fast. I mean, I remember going, I think I was in uh, Sudan with a colleague of mine, and I think it was two 2002 when we were shooting. We had digital cameras, but we had to get them back to Canada and we had to use these floppy, I don't know if you remember floppy disks, the floppy drives <laughs> yeah. for the computers. Yeah. So I could only send like five at a time to this internet cafe. It took forever. And nowadays, I mean, with your laptop, I mean, my, my car is my office. I don't have to see anybody else except my subjects if I want. Um, so it's made it faster. But, and I know now a lot of, a lot of photographers are going back to film, which I think is amazing. I just, I think I'm 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 not the type of person who can sit and stay in a dark room or sit at my computer for a long time. I want to be out shooting more. So I just haven't gone back to film. For me it has no appeal. I feel like mm -hmm. the cameras that are out there now are just fine. Yeah, that's that's quite true. It it seems it seems so much easier to take photos now as compared to before when when you said it was a much more laborious task and, and involved yeah. a lot more skill. But you still have to, I mean, composition Composition and light will still never change, right? You still have to have that quality. A lot of the stuff I, I do now for, like, inspiration, I look at, um, sounds ridiculous, but I really like studying, especially for some of the available light portraits and stuff, um, paintings. Like, I love the Dutch masters, like Rembrandt and Vermeer. So that really appeals to me. It's interesting that you mention that because in their, in their images, light plays such a huge role and that's something that in a lot of these images really comes out I, I'm I mean the early morning in the barns on the ranch with Clay uh, Chataway near Nanton, um is such a photo that is reminiscent of that because it's about where those subjects are hitting the light it's just the man's face and the horse's rear and it's, <laughs> yeah. I wish it was turned the other way but yeah <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I think I play, I mean, I remember in newspapers, it wasn't always, uh, always great um, for editors when I, you know, would have so much of a, a darkness in my photo. But um, that's, I've just always shot that way. It's, yeah, I think because like I said, yeah, I've just always kind of loved the Rembrandt stuff. And um, I kind of shoot towards the shadows, towards the lights and shadows. Yeah. Um. Can you explain to me a little bit about the use of black and white? Because a, a, mm. a lot of this in here, um, a lot of the images in your in your book are captured in, in black and white. It seems to be that there's um, a lesser number of 
of color photos in comparison. Is yeah, I've always I just love black and white. I know there's another photographer who I love is where uh, William Albert Ellard. I think he's only ever shot in he shoots color for his most his whole career, I believe, or most of it. Um, but I I really like black and white. It just I think. I think it gets the viewer into actually looking at everything in the photo and not just like, you know, if there's a bright yellow or a red in the image, your eye goes right there. I think for me, black and white, your eye goes to, you look at everything in that mm. photo. And it just, for me, it just appeals to me. It looks like, I mean, especially on the ranches and some of the ranches that I go to, it looks like it could be taken a hundred years ago because their ranching hasn't changed on some places that much, you know, with, how they move cattle and with horses and stuff. So to me, it just kind of brings back that, that era. I, I completely agree. A lot of the techniques are definitely passed down generation to generation and, and brandings are definitely a sacred time mm-hmm. for that to happen. It's beautiful to see it. It just pictured in it. I, I really do really love a lot of the images that you've captured. Thank you. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about kind of some of the work that I'm seeing on your on your social media about some of the work you've been doing recently during this COVID-19 pandemic? COVID-19, the pandemic, I mean, this is a huge, it's history. Um, mm. Every photojournalist wants, I mean, this is a big story. It's 100 years from now, people are going to look back at these photos. And I think this is how photography is so important. It will show people how we dealt with a pandemic. Uh, so like, you know, when Easter came around, my first thought was like, well, what are people doing for Easter? It's such a big religious holiday, but it's also when things get together and now they can't. Yeah. So I went to a local, uh, church and, you know, I had a woman that came in to count her rosary. It was a Catholic church and, you know, just seeing people in their masks, it's just so different. Now it seems like it's the new normal, everyone wearing a mask. So I've been documenting just you know, daily life here and there um, in terms of, yeah, COVID, how it affects everyone. Mm-hmm. The the image you have on your social media of the the woman taking a photograph mm. of, outside of a car of, of a woman yeah. to be inside, it's, it is so capturing of what's going on. And I, I think that that's, a lot of what you've done in your work is just capturing the truth of what's happening. Yeah, you know, and I think because I am female, I automatically think about what are new moms doing? How are they, I mean, having a baby shower and showing off your baby is such a big deal to moms. You know, it helps with everything, with mental health, with just getting together with friends and family, and now they can't. And so how do you how do, you do that in this new world? So, you know, Evelyn wanted to show her little baby Ivy to her colleagues at work, you know, so they went for a drive and they stayed social distancing and the window was rolled up and it was this, it's this new way of, you know, showing your baby to your friends and to your grandparents. Um, Yeah. Everything I I think is just so hard and, you know, the mental health is going to be huge. I mean, COVID's affecting the cattle ranch being right with Cargill and stuff. So it just, it's everywhere. I know on my home family ranch, we're trying to sort out how to do a, a branding. I was just going to say, yeah, how do you, so how can you, I mean, if it's still under 15, but yeah, how do you sort out having a branding? A branding is such a, I mean, it's my favorite time of year. It's a big community gathering with friends and family and you're working, but yeah, how do you do that now in some of these big ranches? I, I often wonder about the big brandings of a hundred people that of of my childhood that I went to where just communities and communities gathered and, and how that'll change and, and what it'll look like for Alberta's ranching. But exactly I, like who I've, it's so hard to say, right? I mean, <laughs> I think everyone just wants us to end. Um, yeah. And no one knows. <laughs> but yeah, like the things that you, the places where you can't social distance for jobs, like on a farm, big farmer ranches, what do you do then, right? Is Are all the cowboys going to wear masks? Cowboys, cowgirls, ranchers, right? Like if there's big gatherings. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of the unknown. Yeah. 
I, I am grateful that no matter what happens, it seems you'll be there to capture it. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I will, too, for another 100 years. <laughs> I'd be really old then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Leah. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us this month on CJSW Writer's Block. If you're longing for a new book, remember that Calgary is really lucky with its independent booksellers. We have great bookstores in every quadrant of our city who are continuing to facilitate getting books into your hands despite the COVID-19 pandemic. There's Fairs Fair Books who will do curbside pickup at Inglewood. There's Owl's Nest Books, Calgary's oldest independent bookstore, offering free delivery and curbside pickup between 11 and 4 p.m. Monday to Saturday. Books can be ordered online or by phone. Of course, we also have pages on Kensington and the next page in Inglewood. They may be closed, but you can order uh, delivery from either of these bookstores at no extra charge online or on the phone. Also, we have shelf life books. And while you can't go in and browse around and sniff the books, they also do delivery and curbside pickup from Monday to Saturday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So there's every reason to support your local bookseller and authors, whether they're from Calgary or anywhere else in the world. Call your bookstore. Read a book. It makes the pandemic feel so much better. And last but not least, celebrate the innovation of the creative people in our city. Festivals like WordFest are hosting all sorts of free online events. Reading series are also doing virtual events. Check out Single Onion. Another way to support writers and publishers is through online book launches. You can find more information on the social media of either your favorite author or your favorite publisher. You'll find out all about what's available to you. Keep your hands clean and your heart warm. Stay safe and be well. Just say